you've been listening to the Legendary Life Podcast, then you already have an idea of how professional and Olympic athletes train their bodies to perform at their very best. And you've also heard how some of my CEO clients who have been on this show, who have shared their fitness journey and how fitness works into their lives so that they can perform their best in their business. But something that we haven't covered as much is how do Olympic and professional athletes, as well as high-level executives, academics, entrepreneurs, writers, actors, perform their best mentally? Because the majority of people who perform at the highest level have access to a sports psychologist or mental skills coach. That's why I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. His name is Dr. Chris Friesen, and he is a neuropsychologist who specializes in working with people who are serious about taking their game to the next level. He works with Olympic athletes, professional athletes, executives, all types of people who are looking to perform their best, whether that's on the field or in the boardroom or in their creative endeavor. You're about to hear the latest science from sports and performance psychology, as well as cognitive neuroscience on ways to improve your mental skills, set and achieve your goals, and perform your best at whatever you're working on achieving in your life. So enough talk. Let's get to the interview with Dr. Chris Friesen. Dr. Chris Friesen, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Chris, I'm really excited about our conversation today. You are a neuropsychologist. You've also done some other things working with forensic psychology. But today you're going to be talking to us about sport and performance psychology so we can up our game in our daily lives. But I'm curious, man, when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Essentially, I work with people who, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, want to take their game to the next level. Whether that's the uh, vast majority of these guys are, are elite athletes, but not always. I've worked with other people like entrepreneurs or even writers and things like that. So basically what I do is I take stuff I've learned through neuroscience, through psychology, through sports psychology, executive coaching, and I take that information and I apply it to this person's life and help them basically, in a, for lack of a better way of saying it, hack their way to you know higher performance. Yeah. And you are a fan of that term biohacking. And incidentally, I'm going to be interviewing Dave Asprey a little bit later, but when Ooh. we talk for our, the first time... You've been doing a lot of this stuff, the technology being involved in hacking your body to improve mental and physical performance for a long time. That's very true. It's actually funny. The whole term biohacking, I feel like I just learned that term maybe a year or two ago. And it's funny when I realized, and it was Dave Asprey, actually. So I found something on the internet. I think it was an ad for one of his conferences, the, the Bulletproof Conference. And I remember seeing the video and I thought, wow, like that's, there's a whole subculture that's doing what I've been doing for so long. And I just didn't even know it had a name. Even in graduate school, there was a time when I was, uh, you know, really trying to understand the biology and neurology of personality. And so I would try and alter my own personality in different ways from how dopamine affects the brain, GABA, these various neurotransmitters. And one thing I did was I would take substances, whether they were things as simple as coffee and tea, I'd go clean for a number of weeks and, and take large amounts. And, and I know that this can, for example, raise dopamine in, in the brain and see how it affected my behavior, or even take antidepressant medications or more natural ones like Sammy or St. John's wort. And just to experiment on myself, I would take it for a few weeks, take it for, sorry, a month or two, go off for a month or two, take it again. And these have very subtle effects, but it does a change my baseline level of, let's say, negative emotions. And so I've been doing that for a long time. And of course, other ways when I was an athlete as a kid doing things uh, to hack my reaction time and, and that sort of thing. So I love this stuff. And essentially, almost everything I do with clients, I do on myself, uh, or at least I've done it on myself at one point in the past. So 
I really believe that uh, you want things to have some sort of scientific backing. And I'm never really convinced when I see science. It's like I'll see, I'll read the, the research and then I'll say, well, I'm going to try it on myself before I actually recommend this to someone for real. And until I actually experientially believe it, in other words, I feel it, I believe it, and the research shows that it's effective, then I start to actually incorporate that uh, with the guys I work with. Yeah, and that it was kind of funny because you and I were introduced to a mutual friend, Ryan, who's been a guest on the show as well. Mm. And Ryan's kind of like that too in what he does. Then we met, I was like, man, you guys in Canada are just so cutting edge. But you said that you, this is not the standard. You are like, I don't want to say breaking away from traditional psychological dogma or what, what you would say, but you're kind of branching out and using the research, using all the skills and, and foundational knowledge, but also branching out and experimenting with things that are maybe are, or haven't been validated yet or perhaps will never be validated by meta-analyses and, and double-blind placebo-controlled studies, right? For sure. You know, what I do when I work with, because I'm also still a licensed psychologist and neuropsychologist, so I still work with people. Some of these guys are athletes, uh, but work with clinical problems like depression and anxiety, for example, the clinical anxiety, like panic disorder, panic attacks, that kind of thing. And so I have a, a very different style. And I think it's really a reflection of, you know, my background, my personality, traditional psychological treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy are very effective. You know, there's other ways and there's all sorts of things happening that are on the cutting edge, like things like neurofeedback, all sorts of things like that, heart rate variability training that are showing to be effective in sort of preliminary studies. And they're not necessarily widely used or accepted at this point, but the physiological mechanisms make sense. And, and I really believe that when you want to change, you have to attack it from multiple levels. So I have this sort of broad way of helping people achieve their goals, whether it's affecting or hacking their biology, which is almost always a part of what I do. But I also have the, the traditional cha training, you know, for example, changing the way people think about themselves or events that happen to them, which is like cognitive therapy. Yeah. So that's so cool. And yeah, it's more fun that way, right? You get to experiment. <laughs> and I feel like that's where science needs to be too. It's like, cause there's a lot of this, these types of discussions in the fitness industry too, evidence based information on how we need to design programs and exercise and what works. But at the same time, you got to experience it. And one, someone said something great, and this was in the fitness industry, but it's, it, it was the science of exercise, but also the art of applying it. And that's where I kind of see you as, you know, the science, you have your PhD, you've taken all the courses, you've done your dissertation to get your mm -hmm. PhD, but then you're experimenting and, and using the art of applying what you know. Well, listen, man, we're going to get, <laughs> you and I can really get, based on our past conversations, we can really get down some interesting discussions. But for, sure. for the listeners who don't know you, Chris, can you talk about how it is that you got to the point to where you're doing this today? Because you've, you've had an interesting background and also professional background in how you get to this point where helping people with their sports performance and mental performance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It's been a long journey. It really starts, when I look back on my life, it really starts, um, I'm going to be 40 years old in a few months. So a long time ago, and when I was a teenager, I was a really bad student. I wasn't a bad kid. I was a bad student. It had a lot to do with the fact that I just didn't really believe in myself. I was uh, an anxious kid, especially around school and academic tasks. I just had what, what psychologists call low self-efficacy. It's like low belief in my ability to, to be a good student. And I'm not sure exactly where that came from. In Canada, I was actually in a French immersion program, not to knock these programs, but basically the majority of your schooling is in French. So it's a language I don't speak at home. And switching over to English, I think that caused some difficulties for me. But I kind of started off with this temperament to be slightly anxious, you know, type of kid. 
And, you know, I was doing really bad in school. I discovered sports, of course, like most kids. And I, I started to play hockey. And, of course, hockey's big in Canada. I was a late joiner to hockey. I started when I was 12. I was a goalie. And basically, in Canada, that's starting really late <laughs> for hockey. And I started to do well there. I felt comfortable. I was excited by the competition. And I was I became good at it, you know, and basically I started off as the worst goalie. I couldn't even skate. And by the end of season one, I was the best goalie in the house league. So it was four or five teams. And, you know, this really changed my perception of myself. And so this was the first lesson that uh, our perceptions of our own abilities are often not very accurate. A lot of people underestimate how much talent or ability they actually have. So long story short, failing out of school, uh, started to read Tony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within, for example, and Unlimited Power, I think was the other book. And then Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And those books, I read other books as well, but those books really changed my perception of things. I started to apply what I learned there to sports. And I started to accelerate in sports. I started skipping skill divisions. I started to, I skipped an age group. But quickly realized that in Canada, if you're not basically drafted to the Ontario Hockey League, which is where you get drafted to the NHL, by the time you're 16 or 17, you're, you're, it's an uphill battle from there. So mm-hmm. I realized pretty quick there's a couple of events that happened. I got cut from a really high-level team when their top goalie got cut from the, the OHL above me, and I had no team. So this really opened my eyes and made me realize, okay, hockey's probably not in my future I have to do something with my life. What am I going to do? Got into bodybuilding, loved working out, loved the discipline, applied what I used from hockey to to bodybuilding. I didn't compete or anything like that. This was just working out. And I was that guy at the gym. You know, I was this 16, 17-year-old kid who would read all the physiology textbooks on, you know, muscle atrophy and especially nutrition and would tell anyone who would listen. And I realized, you know what? I want to help people. I want to study these interesting things and help people. And so I decided to apply what I learned from sports, uh, hockey, bodybuilding, and through these self-help books to school. So I got my grades up well, uh, good enough to get into university. And by the end of uh, my, I did four degrees. So by the end of my second degree, I had the, um, I got the highest graduating or GPA for psychology majors. Uh, which was funny because even today we we laugh with my parents and my brother about this how I was basically the bottom student in in high school and I became the top student in university. So long story short, I went through university, wanted to basically come back to uh, helping people, especially high achievers, and uh, but realized of course those programs don't exist. It's not like a PhD in psychology of studying high achievement, especially in Canada. And so you you go through clinical psychology. And my thought pattern was, I'm going to try and learn everything I can about human nature. So I wanted to work in a, with the most extreme populations I could find. So I worked with Alzheimer's patients, hence my neuropsychology background, severe traumatic brain injuries, of course, people with depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and people in the criminal justice system. And so I always thought uh, it was fun to work in those with those populations, but that was not my end goal. Uh, it really was an evolution for me, a learning experience for me, so that I could take what I learned and basically it's going to make me a, better at helping high achievers because I really believe that it would really help me if I could help people at their absolute lowest points. So that was sort of the long story short of of how I got to where I am now, and you know, sort of the main point is, you know, that I realized for, from my own experience and from working with others is that we have way more control over our destiny than we usually believe. And I find it really tragic when people go through life and don't achieve the goals they really wanted to achieve because they either didn't believe in themselves or someone else didn't believe in them, or they just didn't know what to do, or they have certain personality tendencies that they didn't know how to overcome. And that really bugs me. So, you know, my goal is to take what I've learned through all of my schooling and and my working with all these populations and high achievers and, you know, help people achieve what they want to achieve. I love that, man. And that's such an inspirational story, too. You went from being this kid with 
low self-efficacy is mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. the term used. <laughs> and then you became a high achiever. Now you want to help other people. I love it. And what's really interesting, because I have actually two very close friends who I haven't seen as much lately because they, their daughter is, uh, you know, it's all about the daughter right now. But mm. he's a neuropsychologist like you mm-hmm. who actually does medical education now for medical doctors. But she is a psycho-oncologist and we're friends and we've been in these debates. Now, you mentioned something about cognitive behavioral therapy and mm-hmm. we've been in this these debates about like, Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey, and I think Stephen has a degree, but Tony doesn't, and other people like him who don't have a degree or specific knowledge in psychology, they don't know the history, all the different therapies. So you're a guy who has one of the most scientific psychological degrees, neuropsychology, where you know all about the brain and, and how to test for different problems with the brain, but yet... You like people like Tony Robbins. Can you talk about <laughs> that a little bit? You know, there's a number of things there. One is, of course, guys like Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey, even though at this point I don't agree with everything they do. And it's actually funny because the longer I was in graduate school and undergraduate, so I think I was in university for, I did four degrees, so it took me 12 years. And so there is a brainwashing, not purposeful, but when you're enmeshed in a particular field for 12 years, and of course I did postdoc training after that and, and that sort of thing. So but when you're enmeshed in that environment, you are, you know, you start to think that way and it basically changes, there's neural changes in your brain. These different patterns start firing and the older patterns start to die out. And like I said earlier, Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey, they kind of saved me. You know, are there methods? Do they have randomized controlled studies? And do they have meta-analyses backing them up? No. Are a lot of the stuff they talk about actually similar to what psychologists know? Yes. Are some of the things they talk about kind of wacky? Sometimes. And but it's so funny because a lot of the things that these self, self-help guru guys were talking about for many years, only recently are we starting to do research on it, not specific to them, but just the whole idea. And it turns out that a lot of this stuff was actually true. So, you know, wow. from, from you know, ways of doing goal setting to ideas of willpower being a limited resource and all these things are turning out to be true. So it's these guys are, you know, Tony Robbins, Stephen Covey. These guys are very smart people. And I'll be honest, when I was in grad school, that was the mentality. I, you know, I even started to think that they were not, you know, they were kind of idiots in my head. That's not part of CBT or, you know, you'd have those conversations with people. But, you know, as I've been out of grad school for a number of years now, you start to realize that, wait a sec, now I can look at this a bit more objectively. And I see that there's a lot of truth to that stuff. And traditional psychology is not very inspirational. It's it's really about you know, it's really about this objective scientific understanding of human nature, the good and the bad, mostly the bad, mostly the neutral. Only recently they've been focusing a bit more on the good with positive psychology. But so it's an interesting thing. I have a sweet spot for that, but there is some truth in a lot of that stuff. But when you're in the, the academia world, it's a very closed off world and it's all encompassing. It takes a lot of brain power or a lot of brain space to be able to succeed in that world. And it's not like you can spend a lot of time doing other things and reading other things and succeed at that world. It's, it's a very cognitively demanding, like any education is. So it's, you get brainwashed again, not purposely, but when you're in that position for many years, when you're studying for many years, then, then you can start to see things from only one perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so if you're an academic listening right now, try to use that as a bit of inspiration because Chris, I really appreciate you being on here because there's a lot of people who I've had on the show or may perhaps will have on the show and I'm not knowledgeable enough about psychology, positive psychology, all the different areas of psychology and what works and and what is backed by research and what has a sound foundation in science, perhaps, in our understanding of the human body and the human brain, but just hasn't been validated yet. So Mm -hmm. what would you say to someone who 
is trying to figure, besides listening to my show, of course, right? And guys <laughs> like you on it. But for someone who's maybe having some trouble differentiating between what is legit information that will help their life and what is just kind of pseudoscience nonsense. As everyone knows, we're in this information explosion era with the internet. And anybody can get, you'll see most of the books written about what are traditionally psychological or neuroscience topics are written by non-psychologists, non-neuroscientists. And part of the reason is that anybody can educate themselves pretty much with everything. Think of Google, pretty much their, their goal is to scan every book and make it available for viewing on Google. And so all this information is available to anybody. But the problem, of course, is how do we differentiate you know, what is good and what is bad? And I don't have a really good answer. There are some very strong principles that have been you know, found repeatedly by psychologists in, in research over the years. I'll give you one simple example. One is called exposure. And what this means is whenever we're afraid of something, and, and everyone knows this intuitively, but we've psychologists have researched and basically proven it. We don't like using the term proven, but supported the idea many, many times as basically uh, considered a fact or a principle. So exposure means that when we have an anxiety or some fear over something, the anxiety actually will dissipate the more you face that fear. So you can think of yourself when you first jumped off, let's say, a, a high a diving board as a kid, the first time you were, you know, your legs were shaking, you're, you know, for lack of a better term, you're probably shitting bricks before you jumped off. But once you jumped off, once or twice, your anxiety would drop exponentially. And then after that, there's no anxiety associated with it at all. Another quick example is, of course, we can use sports like people I see, but I'll give you a personal example. I taught uh, psychological assessment at uh, one of the biggest uh, universities in Canada called York University. That's where I went to graduate school. And I had to, you know, it was my first time teaching. There was 150 students. I knew the principles of exposure, so it was okay. So I go in there very first day and I'm extremely nervous. I have to talk for three hours. and But I know that I'm not going to be able to stay nervous for three hours straight the principles of exposure, basically the brain habituates to anxiety over time. And so I knew that I'm going to be really nervous for the first 10 minutes or so, and then it's going to slowly drop off. And so that happened. I knew that would happen. So I could ride, I call it riding the wave. I could ride the fact that I was anxious and, and allow it to happen and just, just work through it. And then the next week when I taught the course again, the next class, I knew I'd be anxious a little bit less, which was true. And then the following week, and basically the same thing happened. By the third or fourth week, I had no anxiety whatsoever uh, standing in front of 150 students and talking about different ways of assessing people psychologically. So that's an example of a principle. And you'll see a lot of books will will talk about that. A lot of self-help books will mention that idea. They won't say exposure, but They'll this say is a principle. Desensitization yeah. or something like that. That's right. It could be as simple as like face your fears, you know, there you go. You know, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, it's so, so all these things are, it's, they sound gimmicky, but there, there's some truth to a lot of it. So it, I'll be honest, it's hard to tell, you know, there's a book relatively recently called the secret. I'll be honest. I didn't actually read it. So I'm probably uh, not the right, I shouldn't use this as an example, but my understanding was this, you know, if you think positively or, or give positive, you know, feelings to the world, you're going to get back positive things. And, and there's some truth to that. But it's, you know, it's also part of that's probably not very scientifically valid. And then there's... I watched that movie, Chris. It just oh, I actually got me into some things that I maybe you wouldn't have gotten into before. But oh, after yeah. a while, and you, you see the way people interpret it, like uh, I remember this girl kind of saying, no, I'm, I'm married and I have kids and I'm in an awesome relationship. It's like, but you're not even dating. What are you talking about? You haven't been on a date. You got to go out there and do things, right? It's true, right? It's actually really interesting. One of the myths is, and I wouldn't say it's a complete myth, but there's, for example, one school of thought in self-help books is the idea that I have to believe in myself before I can do something. So yeah. if I, if I took that example if I took that advice and before I actually taught that class, I would never have taught the class because I was, because I would read my emotions. I say, look, I'm thinking about teaching this class and I'm feeling anxious just thinking about, it. I have to go in front of all these people. What if some student asks me questions I don't know the answer to, you know, so my belief wouldn't be a hundred percent solid in my ability to do it. 
you know, it helps to believe in yourself before you do it. But the reality is when you do things, you start to believe in yourself. Yeah. So it's really the opposite, right? So it's, and that's exposure. That's the same principle of exposure. You do things and that's how you convince your brain. So I'll give you another quick example. When I, I do this occasionally, I did a lot more in the past. So I work with patients with phobias. So for example, someone has a car accident and becomes afraid or phobic of driving a car. And so essentially what they do is uh, some psychologists will say, hey, let's just talk about it. Let's just challenge your negative thoughts and beliefs about the probability of having an accident before you, you know, get in the car. And that's actually not very effective. Research shows that it's not all that effective. It's much more effective to simply say, okay, let's just get in the car. I remember, this is not the same example, I remember I had a, a, a high-level lawyer who was afraid of elevators, but she worked on like the 10th floor. And she went to all these therapists before me. It's not me, these are known principles within psychology, but uh, she talked to, she was blue in the face about, rationalize herself out of the fear. And I said, you know, you can do that until you're blue in the face. Let's go right now, we're gonna go stand in front of the elevator and for 10, 20 minutes until your anxiety comes down. Now we're gonna stand in the elevator for a certain amount of time. And then uh, next week we're gonna go up and down the elevator, you know, basically, you know, for uh, whatever it was, 30 minutes until your anxiety comes down and then you can get out of the elevator. And of course, I made sure she was ready and willing to do that. I'm not gonna shove her in the elevator and lock the door, but basically that cured her, you know, her fear of elevators. Doesn't mean she'll never be afraid of elevators again, but essentially the brain works like this. You can convince someone by talking to them or try to convince yourself. It's never as strong as if you actually experience something. So when she goes in the elevator and realizes nothing bad really happens, her brain learns about 100 times faster than talking about how it's not dangerous. Man, I love this because you're also showing how some psychologists who do have all the academic credentials and even experience really mess things up. And man, I love that. I was actually, before you use those examples of people who actually got therapy for this and, and got, let's say, less effective therapy. As you said, there's some support for it. It's just not very, not very effective uh, mm -hmm. according to your experience and also more recent research. I was listening to a self-help guru talking about confidence and mm -hmm. he was like, listen, you got to look in the mirror and you got to tell yourself, I'm confident, I am strong, and I can do this. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, everything that I've conquered in my life, I had zero belief, I was hesitant, I had fear, mm -hmm. I had anxiety. And it wasn't until I did it and got the experience like you just mentioned, can you talk about that, that I ended up conquering that, that area? And mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about why that is? Because uh, one thing I've said, Chris, and, and I don't know if I'm 100% right, but I say biology trumps psychology. And, and to make it more specific, right? An experience that you feel emotionally in your limbic brain or, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about any of my explanation here, trumps what you do with your prefrontal cortex trying to get that like, okay, well, let's look at the statistics. And can you talk about that a little bit? And, and, and if I was uh, off on anything, please uh, correct me. No, you're generally right from the way you explain it. So that's great. One thing I'll mention that idea of positive self affirmation or positive affirmations or self affirmations. So basically, like the guy was saying that this other guru, you look at yourself in the mirror, tell yourself you can do this. Sort of like is it Jack Handy or something from uh, Saturday, oh, yeah, Night, Saturday Live. Night Live? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it's actually interesting, and, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't remember all the details. It was actually relatively recently that psychologist actually was a university in Canada that researched the idea of. Again, I'm butchering it because I don't remember all the details, but essentially they found self-affirmations made people feel worse. So it had the actual opposite effect. Again, yeah, this you're is lying to yourself, right? You're like, I don't believe this. That's exactly, yeah, you know, I think that's probably what happens. We start to say that and we just don't believe it. It's just like you're, you're going through the motions and it feels ingenuine and you can, your brain basically easily comes up with arguments for the, why that's not true. So... <laughs> Like you said, change uh, happens with behavior first. So you, you do something and then you prove yourself wrong because 
your brain has evolved to essentially protect itself. So your brain has a natural negative filter for the vast majority of people. It makes sense because you, you, this is what it took to survive. If you are overly optimistic, then you're going to go pet the saber-toothed tiger one too many times and you know, your genes aren't going to get passed on. So we know this evolutionarily that, that we are hardwired to see things in a slightly negative way, but the idea is to protect ourselves. We should all be really happy we have this. We also be walking in front of traffic, being overconfident that we could dodge cars. Uh, so, so we all know that this is, um, we know this is the case, that our brain does this. And I'll be honest, I'm forgetting where I was going with this. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting because there's just so much of that out there. And you see the people who do try to use this positive affirmation and it doesn't seem that effective. Now, if you're doing the experience and you're leading with that, the, mm. the more effective way to change your, I guess, perception or behavior, or reorient your neurons or whatever is happening in your brain, is there any value at all to positive self-talk or, or affirmations? Yes and no. So when I work with athletes, for example, there are times when, let's say in the heat of competition, that you need to... Get your focus in the, on the right things, and you know that could be that it could include thinking positively. But put it this way: a lot of people come to me saying, a lot of athletes, lead athletes, say, "Look, I want to go in. I've seen this other Olympic wrestler that I've competed against. He's from Russia. He like takes a nap right before the match. He's never anxious. You know, I feel super anxious and I'm not confident. I want to be like that." The reality is, though, that's not an, actually an ideal state to be in. What you do and is, he's just you, got a poker face on, right? Exactly, right? Yeah, he's got a Russian poker next, face. He's nervous next, inside. That's, yeah. that's right. The next session is with the Russian wrestler saying, "I want to be confident like the other guy." No, I'm just kidding. So, so if you go in around your life being really, really confident, let's say in wrestling. Okay, let's just give that as an example. So, if you want to go in and you're telling yourself, "I'm going to just sweep the competition." And I'm going right through you know, Olympic trials and I'm going right to the Olympics and I'm going to convince myself, I'm going to visualize myself just like slaughtering everybody. That's actually the worst thing you can do. If it actually works and it makes your confidence higher, that's even worse because that means you're going to work less hard. So you need to have those self-doubts because when your alarm goes off at 5 a.m. to get up and go run or train, when you're exhausted, you're tired, you don't really want to do it, and your brain isn't functioning at full capacity at that time in the day, so it's easy to have irrational thoughts. You know, Basically, if you're thinking that way, you're going to say, you know what, I can skip today. You know, I'm going to kick ass, right? You know, I'm starting to believe it. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to go take an, <laughs> I'm going to eat a sandwich and go back to bed. Got this exactly. Handled. Exactly. You know, interesting, Chris, is uh, – I don't know if you're familiar with Hicks and Gracie. No, uh, that sounds familiar, but uh, he's like a me. Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend. Oh, yeah, and, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, what no. he said? I was thinking of some psychological term, but yeah, yeah of course. I, I'm a Are big you familiar fan, with so, yeah. the Hicks and Gracie effect? No. no, I'm kidding, man. No, okay. no I'm kidding. <laughs> good. No, okay, but good. He, he's a legend in Brazilian jiu-jitsu yes. and MMA. He was a pioneer, and there's he's literally a living legend. There's so much. Uh, mysticism and stuff around Hickson and what he does in his training. But they did a, a documentary on him called Choke, and it was about mm. this big fight in Japan. And he was saying kind of what you're saying now. He's like, I don't go in there thinking that I'm going to win. I think I need to be scared of this guy. I think I need to train hard because this guy could easily, or I, you know, I'm paraphrasing yeah. you know, so, and, and I don't have a Brazilian accent, but basically <laughs> what he was saying, he's like, no, I'm prepared for everything. I know that I need to work hard and I need to take him very seriously because I could get hurt badly or do this. And he said, there's a, a big connection between intelligence and being afraid. And yes. uh, although he didn't, he didn't really go into detail. What he meant was, the intelligence in preparation is the way I, I understood it. Yeah, that is so true. I'll give That's you an typical of high performers, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like everyone who comes to me and, you know, everybody has self-doubts and self-doubts are good. And that's the hardest part. People don't get Self-doubts are that. good. You should have self-doubts. Self-doubts are motivating. Like you said, you, you have to say, 
you know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I should train for another 10 minutes. Maybe I should do a few more minutes of cardio. Maybe what happens if I gas out? You know, all these things are important because they motivate you to try harder. And so, of course, when you get to the fight or whatever the, the, the sport or, or even if you're making a, a presentation in front of people, you, you want to be confident in your ability. So I'll give you a quick example. When we talk about visualization, we call it imagery because it's not just visual. You use all your senses to imagine yourself being there. And I could talk a little bit about the neuroscience, about how there's physical changes in your brain if you do it in a really realistic way. But what I tell people to do is you don't imagine yourself just sweeping the competition. You imagine yourself going through a realistic and hell of a time, but still coming out on top. So, for example, let's say it's MMA. You know, you imagine yourself going through a five-round or three-round, depending on which kind of, uh, you know, if you're champion or not, five- or three-round war, but you still come out on top. You don't imagine what happened with Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor, where it's, you know, the first punch, you win. I mean, that's great, but if you imagine many, many times that you just destroy the competition, again, it could boost your confidence, but it's not realistic. You want to use visualization or imagery in a way that prepares you for anything, but you still come out on top. So you let's, go through let's a Let's talk about win. that, Chris, yeah. for a second. You brought up a great example, uh, Conor and, and Aldo, and mm-hmm. afterward, people were like, for me, it's like, man, that was hard to call it a fight. You know, definitely Connor was ready and it seemed like he had a perfect counterpunch. But, you know, there's some arguments back and forth. And a lot of my friends, at least on Facebook, but I uh, actually met some of these guys who are like, oh, mindset. Connor had the match won before he stepped in because of all the things he was saying. What you're kind of saying is a bit different. Can you maybe? Because I know you're an MMA fan. Can you break that down for what is your perspective on what happened leading up to the fight and, and what happened during the fight? It's really hard to tell because, of course, Conor McGregor has a persona and a persona that's made him a, a lot of money and has got him to the top really fast. Not to say that he's not really, really good. But, you know, if he was a lot more, if he was a meeker guy, if he was uh, really reserved and passive, and, you know, he probably wouldn't have got the same opportunities he had. It's business, it's show business. This isn't all based on pure skill. So, so you're saying part that. of that may be just tough talk, but he was training his ass off. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've, I watched clips of him training, even doing some special movement training, which, you know, is would be considered by some macho guys to being not very macho. And this is, it reminds me, of course, Canadian GSP, who was al- always doing these, uh, basically training as if he was a gymnast and all sorts of odd moves and strengthening muscles that are very non-traditional. But so with Connor, again, I don't know anything about you know, what was really going on in his head. Of course, there, you know, there's a lot of evidence that getting into your opponent's head is, is very effective. You making, if you seem like you have no fear of that opponent, the opponent, you know, what you're doing is maybe planting a seed of doubt in your opponent's head. But again, it, you know, it may actually work against you. So if that person's thinking, oh, maybe Connor's, you know, if Jose was thinking, maybe Connor's really good. Maybe I should take, I should train a bit harder because, you know, he seems to be really confident. I think on paper, I know I'm better than him, but what's going to happen? Like you say, you never know what's going to happen in an MMA fight. So, you know, of course, it was really fast. There was some was- luck involved. It was a perfect punch. Nothing really happened in the fight. Of course, they're going to have a rematch and, and then we'll have a better idea as to what happens. It could be like a Chris Weidman, Anderson Silva situation where you kind of think it was a bit of a fluke the first one and then he beats him again. So, you know, we'll, we'll soon find out. But it's really interesting because Connor is, um, you know, he's a, a megastar because of his personality. I don't think Connor has a lot of anxiety, but he is driven probably by the drive to be the best, to be famous, to be a legend, you know, as opposed to, yeah, so so he's so you can actually talk about goals and motivation from two perspectives. One side is people are, tend to be motivated, and this is again based on your actual core personality. Some people tend to be motivated and and set goals that are geared towards protecting themselves or preventing a negative outcome. So, for example, someone exercising, someone could exercise because they're afraid that they're going to get heart disease like their their father, or they're going to be overweight. And so they do it for those reasons. And then you have people who make goals and are motivated to, you know, do something that's more 
we call it approaching big rewards. We, we, I, won't, I won't give any technical details, but essentially you're going to get the big reward that's out of the ordinary. Does that make sense? So you're, you're going yeah. for to be the champ, not just to defend the title. You know, are you going to be the number one MMA fighter ever to ever live as opposed to just like, I want to keep my streak alive. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I've had a guest on here actually, Dan Pena, who is a high performance coach, definitely hmm. does not have psychological an academic psychological background, but he said people do things out of two things, desperation or inspiration. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of relates similar. to what you said, but, but let me ask you this, Chris, because I think I'm a little bit of both. I'm definitely, I do things to protect myself. And I also do things that are more aspirational. Like, man, I want to do this awesome thing. I want to create this for people or mm -hmm. I have big aspirations as well. Is there, and you mentioned about our core personality and we, we can talk about that in a bit, but is there any benefit to having one or the other or both? Uh, yes and no. So you brought up a great point that you, how you're both. And the reality is most people are in the middle from, from all the major personality traits. The vast majority of us are in the middle. So let's say example, extroversion versus introversion. Well, the vast majority are what we call ambiverts. Or so it's only the extremes. It's the normal, excuse me, the normal bell-shaped curve that we are actually seeing the hardcore. So you know, there is good things and bad things for each one. So if, for example, if you're, are, you're motivated and your goals tend to be more aspirational, you're going to take bigger risks and you're going to have bigger failures. Interesting. But, but then on the other extreme, if your goals are, are, are to protect yourself and to prevent a negative thing from happening, then, well, the good thing is you're probably, bad things are probably not going to happen to you, but you're never going to make it big if that's something you really want to do. So the reality is you want to kind of be in the middle because you, you need both of those sort of mindsets to be able to accurately determine what you should do at a given point in time. So, you know, it could be, wait, there's this, this is an investment opportunity. I'm going to take all my savings and put it right in. And so you may overestimate the probability of success and then you make a huge mistake. Or it could be that you won't even invest one penny into Google when it first started. And now you're kicking yourself because you're way more into protecting yourself. So when you're in the middle, you can, you can sort of, it's like the devil and the angel on your shoulder. You can kind of go both ways and, and, and hear one side and hear the other. If I, I think in terms of success, you kind of want a mixture of those two. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Chris, let's take this in a bit of a different direction. Sure. Because, man, we, we have so much to talk about. I know already that I'm going to have to have you back on so we can discuss a lot For of this sure. stuff in more detail, mm -hmm. uh, especially if, uh, after I get some feedback from the people who hear your, your interview. But let's talk about something that is really important during this time, which is something you alluded to earlier, and I'd like to go into more. What can you tell us about how to successfully set goals and achieve them? And actually, right now, it sounds like a plug, but it's not. We haven't talked about this much. But So I'm, I'm writing a series of books. And the first one is about... I like how it's a series of books. You were definitely, oh, I'm writing a, a few volumes of books. Love it. They're small books. You know, they're small books. And this has to do with achieving goals that are achievable. So if I say I'm going to write a thousand page book, it could take me 10 years to write that book. So instead, and of course, that's how our... Uh, the, our society is going these days, myself included. I don't want to read a thousand page book. I want to read a 90 page book that I can read in a couple of hours and get some real practical tips. And if I want to read the next one, I can read the next one. I don't have to you know, buy one gigantic volume. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons in going into that. So I, I'm writing up sections and right now on goals. It's, it's the first book is really about finding what's important to you and then setting goals and achieving those goals. And so that's where my focus is right now. So that's a great question. One of the very, very first things you need to do is make sure that your goals are the right goals for you. So, you know, one thing is knowing your personality and eventually once this book is ready, I'll have a link on my website. You're, you'll be able to do a quick test. It's not the perfect test, it's, it's, but it's a test that'll give you an idea of your core personality. You have to know your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, so you need to know that about yourself. There's a big push in positive psychology, not to knock positive psychology, 
but that you should really focus on your strengths. This is big in executive coaching as well, which I'm trained in as well. I don't agree with that 100%. I agree that you should follow your passions and your strengths, but you need to be very aware of your weaknesses and decide, is this something I can change or improve? So in terms of goals, the first thing you want to do is you really want to know what your values are. And within this book, I'll have a values measure to help clarify what's really important to you. What do you value uh, you know, in life? And to do this, you really have to take a long-term perspective. And you'll see once this book comes out and even just talking to me, and if you know Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, there's a big commonality. This has been in my life since I was probably 15 years old, and it's never left. And I attribute a lot of my quote-unquote success to this. So you want to really think about, he says, begin with the end in mind. So that means you basically think of in the the long term, in the future, where do you want to end up being. And so you've really got to start there and work your way backwards. That's the way I see it. So you got to think of yourself, you know, there's an exercise in the book, which is uh, Stephen Covey does the same thing, which is thinking about even your funeral. What do you want people to be saying about you at your funeral? And do they want to be saying, what do you want your kids to say about you? What do you want your colleagues to say about you? What do you want your partner to say about you? And you want to imagine it in a really realistic way. And that helps you get in touch with what's really important to you. And then you want to really clarify what where your values are. And you need to sort of use a, uh, it's better to use some sort of measure that really lists a whole bunch of values. So you can really look through the list and figure out which of these really apply. And then once you've gotten that figured out, and then you start to think, okay, what's my 10-year goal? What's my five-year goal? What's my one-year goal? What's my six-month goal? What's my one-month goal? What's my next week goal? And you really work yourself all the way back. And that way you make sure your aimer is focused on the right target. Because what you can do is, and this also depends on your personality. If you're very high in conscientiousness, which means you're highly motivated, highly organized, and that's I'm like that, what you can do is you can get into an area and just bull forward and kind of never see the forest from the trees. You're just you have no perspective because you're really efficient and good at moving forward, but every once in a while you gotta stop and take a survey of the land and look and see, hey, look. Am I going in the right direction? Is this the right thing for me? Is this where I really want to end up being? Because when it comes to achieving goals, the biggest issue is staying motivated. That's the hardest thing. We can all set goals. I want to make a million bucks. Well, a million bucks for most people is not that motivating. It's not the million dollars. It's what that you know million dollars will give to you and what kind of a lifestyle and what you can do with your family and friends. And a lot of these are myths, of course. You think, once I'm rich then I can relax or then I can yeah. spend more time with my family. Because all, all, uh, yeah. all my CEO multimillionaire clients are, are so relaxed. They're not. That's right. Exactly, <laughs> They're right? not. That's exactly right. Anyone who's got the uh, motivation to reach that are just going to set a new really big goal after that. So so life is a journey, right? It's If you don't like the journey, then you know if you don't like the process, then you're not going to feel anything when you get to the end of that. You know, once you reach that goal, you're just going to really quickly sit, turn around and set a new goal. So, it's really, really important that uh, you have a real driving passion, a, a why behind why you're doing something. And so, I'll give you a really quick example. So, with some of the athletes I work with, like I, I gave that example a bit before, where they have to wake up really early in the morning and get themselves to do something that their brain, because it's half asleep, doesn't really want to do, which is get up and go to the gym or run on the treadmill, whatever it may be. Even going to work because you want to pay off your mortgage. You got to get in your car and sit in traffic and you just don't want to do it. So what you do is in those moments of weakness, you basically have your goal, your big goals, uh, you're written out in some form, for example, on a piece of paper, on your phone, and you look at those goals. It's a message to yourself. It's saying, listen, I don't give a shit how you're feeling right now. <laughs> I want to achieve this goal, so get up. I mean, that's uh, not what like the goal it. says. The goal says, pay off my mortgage so I can do more of what I love to do. And so if there's one principle that really differentiates those people who are successful in life in all domains and those who are not is the ability to live by your values and goals and not by your immediate circumstances or moods or feelings or whatever you want to call it. 
So if you live your life and make your, all your decisions from a moment-to-moment basis based on what makes you feel good, what's most comfortable, you're probably not going to progress in terms of what, if you have any major goals. Everybody who's achieved any goal, a big goal, will know that you had to go through a lot of shit to get to that goal. So you have to remind yourself that I think Nietzsche said something like, he who has a why can get through any how, something like that. So you basically want to remember that to be successful, you make your daily decisions based on your values and your goals, not on your immediate circumstances or your moods and other fleeting things. I like that a lot, Chris. And it was something Does that make I was, sense how I explain that? Yeah. And something I was going to ask you about too, because people... Again, self-help gurus will talk about following your passion. You got to have passion. and But a lot of people will have these goals like make a million dollars or, oh, I want to get in shape. I want to lose 20 pounds or 50 pounds or whatever it is. And then they don't end up going through with it. And an interesting case study, if you will, I was having a conversation with the guy the other day and he was talking about he's a young guy 30 years old and he Mm -hmm. was coming up on 30 i guess when this happened to him and he was like yeah you know i really wanted to lose weight and and so i tried exercising and eating better but i just couldn't stick with it then as Mm. he got closer to 30 years old he started to feel the age he started to feel bad in other Mm. words and he's like whoa i'm feeling bad i don't want to feel bad because we start to starts to bring up all sorts of things with your mortality and you know with a guy it's like you're you're not as virile all these things I'm sure came up for him and then he got it together and started eating better and and, and exercising what do you have to say about I know you talked already about core values and understanding and getting clarity on what you want to achieve what do you have to say about being clear on what motivates us and I'd also love to hear about where you think passion fits in to this thing as well, because uh, if your passion, like you said, even was playing hockey, but you right. saw that it wasn't going to be, you weren't going to go to the big leads and, and have the type of success in that arena that you wanted. Mm-hmm. So you switched gears. I mean, how does someone who has maybe a passion like that, find the sweet spot between what is going to serve them best and what makes Mm -hmm. them feel really good doing. One of the things that we sometimes mistake for a passion is a specific topic or sport, for example, hockey. So if I really, if you really look back, I mean, of course, hockey is great. It's fast. There's lots of things to like about hockey, but the passion it's not just the sport itself, it's the process of doing that sport. So you don't really have a true passion for something. If you hate practice and you only like it when you scored goals or you get a shutout, that's not, you're doing it for the wrong reasons if that's the case. A real passion for it means you love practicing and you love doing all these things that, you know, that are not as glorious as getting a shutout or winning the championship. So so some people think of passions in terms of a particular topic, like hockey or, or sport or, or career. Medicine's my passion. But a lot of times, it's really the engagement of your strengths, your personality, and your values that are the driving passion in a lot of things. So for example, in my case, it was I loved getting better and, and taking what I learned and applying it in practice, really reading self-help books and changing my diet and seeing if that improved my performance and you get immediate feedback on these things. And then we, with hockey, there's always two goalies. I would, I would talk to the other goalie, tell him what I learned. I would give him all my secrets, even though at times we're competing for the same position. But my mind was, I don't care. If, if you can still beat me, you're still better than me. And, and we're, I'm giving you all the secrets. Then that's good for you because now we're on an equal playing field. So that was just my, my way of looking at it. But it was really that process as opposed to hockey itself. Yeah, so, so people who think they have a passion because they like scoring goals or skating on the ice, but don't enjoy all the other stuff that goes into it, they don't mm-hmm. really have a true passion, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have a true passion, but you can you should look at it in terms of what is it about 
whatever you think you're passionate about that you like. Or you can say, I'm passionate about drinking beer and getting drunk. Uh, well, you know, that's not a true passion. You know, it feels good to get drunk, but that's not really a true passion. But I have, for example, I used to work in a brewery when I was a teenager and I was exposed to guys who were, you know, chronic alcoholics. And that, that was actually another awakening moment for me that I thought, hey, these are guys who also played hockey. They're pretty good. Now they work in the brewery and they drink beer all day long, like all day long because it's free unlimited beer in the brewery. And that scared the shit out of me. And, you know, but some of these guys, though, weren't necessarily alcoholics, but they have a passion for for everything to do with beer, learning how to brew the beer, the different hops and the different cooking methods and all these things. And and they have, you know, that's a true passion. Does that make sense? It's like, Absolutely. I like watching hockey on TV, but that's not the same thing as having a passion. But yeah. for example, if you love hockey, let's say in my situation, I love hockey so much. I love to talk about hockey and everything to do with hockey. And that person came to me and said, listen, what do I do with my life? I hate everything else. And I said, well, look, you, you, got a, you got the gift of the gab and you have a passion for hockey. Well, how, why don't you start a podcast where you just talk about hockey and, you know, go for it. If this is really, really your passion and you, just, you, you, could, you would just do anything to talk about hockey all day, then that's what you should do. So there is, you know, there's ways of, of looking at it that that's not always the way we think we should look at it. One guy is named Cal Newport. He has a book. I forget the name, but and I haven't read his book. I followed him on his email list, but he talks about the idea of finding and following your passion is a big myth. And the people that are really successful, that's not what they did. And again, I'm going to butcher what he's saying, but my understanding from what he's saying is similar to what I'm saying is that it's actually you, you grow to like things when you're doing things or activities that you like to do. So if you're kind of an analytical person, well, you can apply that analytical passion to any topic, whether it's studying, being a criminal investigator to studying the stock market. So it's really that applying these values and traits that you have, and you can apply it across topics. Yeah, that's so well put. And I think there's a lack of clarity about what that really means to have passion for something. And, and you illustrated it perfectly with those examples the guy who loves getting drunk and drinking beer versus the guy who's into the type of hops and where the hops was grown and <clears throat> the different flavors of beer and all the different details that go into it. Cause I'm actually not a beer fan, Chris, but Me I neither, like scotch. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, scotch. <laughs> but I totally get where you're coming from. And I, I know that hearing that breakdown is going to help a lot of people. Well, listen, Chris, we're coming up on, our time. And I know you're a super busy guy and I've got someone to interview as well, no but problem. man, we've just scratched the surface. I know I need to have you back on and we need to talk about biohacking because you've been doing this for so long and you have a different perspective that is, let's say less commercial and marketing E if, if that's yeah. a, a word. Yeah. So sure. we, I know we need to do that, but for the people who want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. So it's at Friesen perform one word Friesen's F R I E S E N uh, Facebook. If you look up Friesen performance, it's really facebook.com forward slash Friesen performance. It's one word. And my website's freezingperformanceoneword.com. Those are the best ways to check me out. I actually, if you go to my website and there is a, a button you can click to get access to five biohacks, what I call biohacks, that you could do every day to actually take your, your game or, or your life to another level. They're free. Uh, you basically sign in. There's a, uh, there's a box that, that comes down and you can sign up for that. And, and that'll get you on my mailing list as well. I'll be honest, I, I don't send a lot of emails out, so I'm not going to spam you. And I, I'll be honest, I hate that sort of thing when people are spamming me, emailing me every two days. Uh, you know, I, I promise I won't do that, and uh, I'll be sending out uh, useful content uh, in, in more so in the future. Yeah, great. So I'll have all that on the show notes page in case you want to go great. there. Definitely connect with Chris. I've downloaded your five biohacks, and that's why I was so excited to talk to you today about biohacking. But we've right. like talked a couple of times in the past few days, like hour-long conversations, and we never even got around to what we were <laughs> supposed to talk about because uh, we're just on the same wavelength. And it's yeah. really a pleasure having you on, man. And, and thank you for providing some clarity about 
what's out there in terms of being real science, pseudoscience, where the line is where we should maybe push outside what has been proven or validated because it'll give us better results for our life. So in that, how about some final words for the listeners about anything that you want to leave them with? I really think that most of us are are living beneath our potential. And this sounds almost cliche, but I, I really believe it. And I think I'm living proof of that. And the people I work with, I think, are proof of that. You know, believe in yourself. And no matter what other people, you know, say, of course, you got to be realistic about where you're at. And I gave you the example about, you know, if you're four foot one and you can't dribble, you're probably not going to make the NBA no matter how much you love it. I mean, it's still possible, but it's the, the, the probability is pretty low. But at the same time, we're walking around with these hangups about what we're able to achieve that are usually inaccurate. There are things you can do, and there's lots of free information available. There's a lot of crap available too, but try and better yourself and just keep moving forward. And I, I really think that's important. I also want to just say, is it's an honor being on your show. I listen to your podcasts. I love them. And, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I love your style. I love the fact that you're really authentic. I love the way you're moving with the podcast. You know, a lot of this stuff about getting people just to improve their lives. I think it's great. It's This is the perfect time to do this sort of work where the society is open and ready for this. And this is great. Awesome, Chris. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I knew you were a, a fan, and but but I appreciate hearing that. And I'm doing my best by getting people like you on because I think you are a total rock star and <laughs> you are going to just explode. So I'm happy to help introduce you to people and, and be part of that for you. That's great. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome, man. Well, we got to get you back on soon to talk about biohacks. We need uh, to I'm do in. that soon. All right. I'm in. You just tell me when. Awesome, Chris. Talk Great. soon, man. Bye.